Hey everybody, welcome to episode 86 of Literary Disco, a manual for cleaning women. Today we re-record a lost masterpiece in order to discuss a lost masterpiece. <laughs> masterpiece. After recording a, um, a wonderful, I, I would say delightful discussion about the newly published collection of short stories by Lucia Berlin, I had a completely screwed up file. It was useless. Um, and I think if it were any other book, we might have said, eh, let's eh. win some, you lose some, we'll, we'll move forward. With this one... Like our Winds of War episode, you know? That that one we didn't do again. Right. Or the Moby Dick episode, where I, I had so many opinions. You did have yeah. some great like, insights on that Moby Dick. You were uh, I don't know if we'll a scholar. You, the thing is, that the, the, the whale is a metaphor. For America. You know? You I mean, said it was a metaphor for, for America, right? The American dream. And I remember... I remember specifically thinking that the opening line was a little cliched. Call me Ishmael, fuck you. You know, yeah, call me Ishmael. That's dumb. Um, but anyway. But with this <laughs> collection, A Manual for Clean Women by Lucia Berlin, it was uh, too important to pass up. So we are doing it again. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, novelist and critic Todd Goldberg, and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi! Hey, Ryder! Hey! So this actually, I think, is going to end up working in our favor that we have to re-record this episode, um, which is my backwards way of excusing myself. Um, because this new f essay that I read that Dave Cullen um, published, yeah, where was that, Todd? It was in uh, Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair. Uh, I, we all got to read that, that article after um, we had already recorded the first version of this episode. And I think that that article was actually really incredible and um, changed a little bit of my perspective on this book uh, for reasons that I can get into once we start talking about it. Um, so I, I would recommend that anybody listening to this episode should A, buy a manual for cleaning women and read at least the, the four stories that we're going to discuss today um, they're incredible. And then B, find a link right now to Dave Collins' incredible essay memoir piece about his relationship with Lucia Berlin. Um, and we'll, Todd, we'll, you we'll put it back up on you... our, uh, we'll, we'll put the, a link up to the story back up on our uh, on our Facebook page also. Um, and it was Dave Collins who actually turned us on to the book in, uh, in the first place. So if you guys don't know, Dave Collins is the author of the remarkable book Columbine, um, which the three of us have talked about it on this show. I don't know. Every other episode. We're obsessed with it. <laughs> so, somewhere in there. Yeah. We're obsessed we with it. We want to call this um, podcast but, uh, Columbine, I... but we thought that would be weird. <laughs> that, that, that would be strange. Columbine disco? <laughs> um, Dave, and I, uh, Dave and I have been uh, friends for, uh, for a bit. Actually, since Columbine came out, I met him right before Columbine came out. And um, before this book was published, he emailed me and said, hey, I think you'd really like this, you know, any attention you might be able to give it um, would be great. Um, but mostly, I just think you'd really like it. It's from my mentor. And at the time, I'd never heard of Lucia Berlin. Um, and the book had received some you know, good advance notice, but I don't think anyone expected what was going to happen, which is that the book came out, it got reviewed everywhere. And 11 years after Lucia Berlin's death, um, after a career basically spent in pretty much obscurity, um, she became a national bestseller. Uh, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, everywhere. Um, 
a bestseller um, and really richly deserved. Um, and then Dave wrote this fantastic essay in Vanity Fair about um, his life with her, basically. She had been his creative writing professor at the University of Colorado Boulder um, and a big influence on his life and his writing. And you really, um, once, you, once you've read this book and then you read some of Dave Cullen's work, you can absolutely see her influence on him as a writer, uh, particularly, I think, in the way he is able to distill character into very small pieces where the strange and the peculiar and, um, and the unusual stand out right away and you understand a person from those, from those small things. So anyway, Dave Cullen is the reason that we're reading this book. So thanks, Dave, for recommending this book. And anytime you want to come on the show and talk to Julia specifically about Columbine while Ryder and I sit quietly, um, I think she'd appreciate that. What? This is, don't put this on me. <laughs> we all love it. Uh, Columbine is one of the reasons we that we're even doing this podcast. That was one of the books that made us friends. We love talking that, about that's it. That's true. What a, what a horrible fucked up thing. Hey, um, are you into uh, teenage spree killers at high schools? Me too. Me, me too. <laughs> so let's talk about the book. I mean, um, it is a amazing collection of short stories and uh there's so so many stories in this book um it came out in hardcover this year um and we read specifically four of them for this episode uh we read dr h.a moynihan a manual for cleaning women emergency room notebook 1977 and step and we love these stories um, I'm not afraid to say, because we already did this episode. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what, what should we go to first, guys? Should we go to a manual for cleaning women, as yeah. it is the title story? Yeah, and, we should. And really the meat of the thing. Um, and we should say, instantly, that this book, um, this collection, it's 43 short stories. Um, some of them are a page long. Some of them are two paragraphs long. Most of the stories themselves are, are pretty short uh, compared to what you might expect from um, a short story collection. Like if you're if you're reading Alice Monroe or something and you're used to a 35-page short story, I think the longest she has in here tops out at 10 or 12 pages. Um, they're all they're all pretty slim, um, but they are culled from her previous collections of short stories, and they essentially go in order in time um, from when she was uh, publishing them. So her earlier stories um, in the book are from her earlier works, and then by the by the conclusion of it, um, it's it's some of the last stories that she published. And I would say if you're just going to read one story, read a manual for cleaning women because it is, it's such a masterpiece. Um, you know, not only is it um, it's structured very interestingly, like as an actual manual for cleaning women, and um, and it's it's. Uh, also got this narrative of this first person, the the woman that is the cleaning woman who's writing this sort of manual. It slowly builds a narrative of <clears throat> a recent death that she's experienced and she's trying to get over, all filtered through her relationships with the various people whose houses she cleans. Um, but she manages immediately in the first like two paragraphs to establish this tonal brilliance where it's like a distance sort of list style story where she's you know describing very basic things that she's seen and buses that she's taking and advice for how to clean houses but then it's such brilliant prose and it's so poetic and beautiful imagery that of course there's 
something more important going on in every it, there's just not a wasted word no. um, mm -hmm. every paragraph is like this compact burst of an entire world um, it's 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 beautiful yeah the detail is amazing and one passage that I really love in her so she starts out with mostly advice and then it moves sort of to a parenthetical and as her story emerges um, so one of the later pieces of advice uh, that is just it's great it's so observant I mean when you read these pieces of advice you feel like oh my god you know like I could be a cleaning woman these advice is so good uh, so uh, one thing she says is uh, cleaning women let them know you are thorough the first day put all the furniture back wrong five to ten inches off or facing the wrong way when you dust reverse the Siamese cats put the creamer to the left of the sugar change the toothbrushes all around and it's just such a perfect crystallized experience of being a cleaning woman and the details are just all they're perfect like that throughout the story so yeah I love and, that. and i think you know so it's it's structured around different bus stops throughout the east bay of um of northern california so you know 40 piedmont slow bus to jack london square um Where's the next one? Uh, 33 Berkeley Express. The 33 got lost. The driver overshot the turn at Sears for the freeway. So you, you're you taken in and out of these buses, basically, and then dropped into these different affluent neighborhoods in and around um, Oakland and, um, and Alameda. Um, and you get to see her point of view of the people that she's cleaning the houses for. And, and I don't know if, if you guys ever had this, but when I was a kid, and I don't know why this was the case because we didn't have any money but my mom always had cleaning ladies um so uh, mrs evans was her name um and before the cleaning lady would come my mom would make us clean the house and then mrs <laughs> evans would come and she she wouldn't have anything really to do because you know my mom already had four children that could clean the house but for some reason like i think it was a status thing that my mom had mrs evans uh, because literally my mom had no money. I don't know why she had a cleaning lady. Um, but, you know, the, there's an entirely, it's, it's a really personal thing when someone comes in and touches your stuff and cleans your stuff. They know all of your secrets. Yeah. And so, um, like, this is this is a horrible story. I can't believe I'm about to tell it, but I'm going to. There was some period of time when I was like eight years old where the bathroom in our house, like from where my bedroom was, was just too far for me to get up in the night to pee. So I would pee... <laughs> in my closet on a plastic bag and then throw the plastic bag away in the morning. I remember, like, I don't I don't know oh why I did this. I don't God. know how long I did this for, but I remember very vividly <laughs> doing it. And my mom was, you know, she was not a very good mother, so she was not, like, going into my closet and finding so shit. So she had no idea that you so were doing it. she had no idea I was pissing in my closet. But Mrs. <laughs> Evans maybe, did. But Mrs. Evans, I remember I came home from school and Mrs. Evans was was sitting there in the family room and uh, she always had knitting that she did. So Mrs. Evans would come and she'd knit instead of clean um, because she had nothing to clean. But she had my dirty bag and she's like, Todd, what are you doing? Why are you why are you peeing in your closet? And I didn't know, I didn't have an answer. It was just, I was lazy. Um, and she's like, you can't do that anymore. You can't, you can't pee in your closet. Um, oh, that's hysterical. It, so it's a really... And the, I mean, it's a shameful thing now that I think about it, but it's a really weird thing to have someone else come in and touch your stuff. Um, 
And then when well, you know that they're judging you for the, your stuff too, like she talks about right. in the story, I think it's it's really compelling. Yeah, well, there can't help but be judgment, you know. Right. <laughs> There's, or just well, assessment, at least. Right. It so reminds me of when I was a dog walker um, because... I was so into the houses and I was so into, I mean, I still am. I mean, like I'm in a whiskey tasting club and my favorite thing about it, and it rotates between people's houses as like a book club would do or something. And I just love seeing other people's homes. I mean, there's no greater fascination than being in other, like around other people's books, around other people's, you know, kitchens, bathrooms, what have you. So, I mean, of course you're going to, revel in all those details although not everybody has as good a story as you todd <laughs> <laughs> well the the interesting thing in this story is that it starts out with her you know going through the stuff that you would think about a cleaning woman would be doing or taking or, or paying attention to so the first page you know she's going through you know the the drugs or the ailments that a particular uh, client has you know 10 a.m the nausea pills uh, dizzy for memory all this stuff and then in the middle of the second page, um, after she's basically said, you know, don't steal from people, don't take money or anything, she says, all I really steal is sleeping pills, saving up for a rainy day. Which is when you realize, <laughs> oh, oh shit, so good. She's, she's stealing sleeping pills so she can eventually kill herself. Yeah. Um, which is just a, you, it, it completely then alters the shape and the form of the story because you realize you're dealing with someone who has nothing left to lose. They're already planning their own death. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's, it's a master turn in a little short story. So there's so many other good stories, too. Um, so let's go on to, I think, Emergency Room Notebook, because that is the most similar to a manual for cleaning women, and that it's a list. And Oh, hold on. Before, before we go on to that. It's got the same... Um, Go ahead. There is one of the greatest descriptions in the history of literature in this short story. Um, she's describing her boyfriend, um, who we find out in the short story, Tear, um, who's dead. Um, and it's, it's this amazing description. Um, she says, Tear refused to ride buses. The people depressed him, sitting there. He liked Greyhound stations, though. We used to go to the ones in San Francisco and Oakland. Mostly Oakland, on San Pablo Avenue. Avenue. Once he told me he loved me because I was like San Pablo Avenue. He was like the Berkeley dump. Oh. <laughs> Man. And to say someone is like San Pablo Avenue, if, you, if, if you're from Northern California, that sort of specific detail is, is, is a telling one. Um, but the he was like the Berkeley dump, that's an example really of... Profound overstatement, which drills into profound understatement. Right. When you think of someone, you know, being... It, it, it's not just that it's a garbage heap. It's that it's the refuse of everyone. And it's collected. And then it's built upon. And then they, um, you know, they, they put grass over it. And then they put another layer of it. And then they burn it. I mean, all She's these things She's saying this in, about her lover. Right. Like She's saying this about she the person she loves. The most and misses... It's yeah, oh incredible. man, it, it's so good. Um, but there's there's those kinds of lines are throughout this story. Um, yeah. But I think you know the 
the thing that, that Lucia Berlin does so well in A Manual for Cleaning Women is that she never sentimentalizes these characters. She never makes it maudlin. They're always just super real. And you as a reader have to make the decision about how you want to feel about them. Right. Um, and because so, there, are, there, there is a risk with a book like that, with a lot of her stories. I mean, certainly Emergency Room, is I would put in the same category as A Manual for Cleaning Women, um, they can become almost a sort of poverty porn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there, there's a version of these types of stories that I feel is attempted in every MFA class. Um, and, you know, it, it, this idea of, of writing about poor people or the underclass or, you know, I'm going to take the perspective of, yeah, whatever, and, and sort of exploit that. And these stories live in that space in right. such a profound, empathic wonderfully realized way that it, you never feel um you never feel like um lucia berlin is 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 exploiting the, or sensationalizing poverty um in any way um it's so gritty and yet still incredibly poetic at the same time one i think it it has a sense of realism of a life that has been lived you know mm-hmm. and we talked about this actually in the previous version of this episode, <laughs> but she, you know she sort of falls into this realm of those dirty realists that came from Carver, basically, um, and Richard Ford and um, Joy Williams and all those folks in um, the mid nineteen seventies and the early nineteen eighties. Um, except that she really had lived that life. You know, she wasn't she wasn't one of those people who had a um, you know, who had gone to Princeton and Yale and then started to write about the underclass. Right. You know, she'd had this strange sort of um, life where she was traveling around. Her, her father ended up taking them to live in Alaska for a time and Chile and all, all these other crazy places, um, but not in some exalted fashion. Um, and so I think the if she's not putting on airs of, of these people. And then she became, um, she you know, she descended into addiction when she was older and, and lost her jobs and lost her health and you know things of that nature, so you're you're seeing these pictures of real life versus someone pretending to know what that life looks like, right. and I think that stops it from being romanticized. It, and in that way, it sort of reminds me of Brees DJ Pancake, right. um, where lost. another lost person, tragic, yeah. tragically underrecognized author, short story author. Well, I, I have a passage here that is a great example of both her level of detail and thoughtfulness and not romanticizing things. So this is page 95 of the book from Emergency Room and Notebook. There are good, this is in quotation marks, there are good suicides, quotation, good reasons, end quote, many times like terminal illness, pain. But I'm more impressed with good technique. Bullets through the brain, properly slashed wrists, decent barbiturates. Such people, even if they don't succeed, seem to emanate a piece, a strength, which may have come from having made a thoughtful decision. I mean, that's hardcore shit, guys. <laughs> yeah. That's that's not fucking no, that's around. How you in you know, that's not room. MFA. Right. And like, yeah, that's exactly. not romanticizing exactly. suicide victims. That's Exactly. That's like having stared them in the in the face. 
many, yeah, it's, many it's like it, yeah. it's like been in the abyss shit right, right there. Right, right. <laughs> and she draws you into it. Like you right. feel it. At the end of that sentence, you're like, God, I've lived a tough life. I mean, it's you feel like you're like, oh, you've 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 stared into the abyss. You can't help but feel completely on the side of your narrator. Um, you just buy the voice, and it's wonderful. And ethically profound because so many of these stories are you know stories that we wouldn't hear that you don't think right. about that it's so easy to forget because you know the class divide in this country is so fucking strong and still incredibly outlasting almost every other division in our culture mm-hmm. um and the, the ability to sort of dehumanize somebody because they clean your house or clean houses or because they are a nurse or an assist. I don't even know what her position is. I in the think hospital. she's like an intake clerk, basically. Right, right. And you feel like it's administrative. It's not right. like she's a, she's not there medically invested. Um, oh, the drudgery. So this, and the another... story that we're talking about, Emergency Room Notebook, nineteen seventy-seven. Um, it's basically it, it's like a manual for cleaning women in that it's it's basically going through the the various different kinds of patients that this narrator encounters in this job as an emergency room um, intake person. Um, there is, it, it, uh, there, there's a very clear parallel between this story and the Dennis Johnson story, emergency. Um, for those of you who have read Jesus' Son, um, they're very similar kinds of stories where you begin to understand the black, dark heart of people who work in medicine. Right. And, 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 and this the, like, humor uh, that they have to maintain. Right. And, and yeah, the surreality of it. Yeah, because if you're surrounded by this stuff every day, I mean, you have to figure out a way to deal with it. And it's also a little bit reminiscent. There's a great short story that maybe not a lot of you know about called First Body by Melanie Rayton um, that has to deal with, that, that deals with a, an emergency room or a, a hospital uh, tech. Um, but there's there's a, this great description in the story of um, sort of the monotony and the mundaneness that because Lucia Berlin is better than the rest of us, she manages to get this this beautiful moment out of it. And it's sort of reminiscent of uh, the, that bit in Gabriel by Ed Hirsch where he goes through his son's autopsy and the listing of the things in the autopsy becomes, you know, the stuff of poetry. So she says, can you hear all those sirens in the background in the middle of the night? More than one of them is going to pick up some old guy who ran, a, who ran out of Gallo Port. Chart after chart, anxiety reaction, tension headaches, hyperventilation, intoxication, depression. These are the diagnoses. The patient's complaints are cancer, heart attack, blood clots, suffocation. Each of these patients costs hundreds of dollars, including ambulance, x-ray, lab work, EKG. The ambulances get a Medi-Cal sticker. We get a Medi-Cal sticker. The doctor gets a Medi-Cal sticker. And the patient dozes off for a while until a taxi comes to take him home, paid for with a voucher. God, I've become as inhuman as Nurse McCoy. Fear, poverty, alcoholism, loneliness are terminal illnesses, emergencies, in fact. Oh! Man, that's good. And it's good, not just because she's listening, but because she changes the meaning of words. Yeah. The, the, The word emergency changes throughout the story to mean different things. And, um... You know, that's that's an artist at work. Yeah. We, we hate her. I don't even feel right <laughs> interpreting that beautiful line. You know? <laughs> I don't hate her, though. 
Guys, when I read good writers, I don't feel jealousy. I just feel... I feel good. Do you feel you know jealousy? What, I don't feel jealousy. I, for someone like Lucia Berlin, who is finding today the acceptance that she should have found in her life, mm. I feel a little sad. Mm-hmm. Um, because the world wasn't ready for this her kind of writing. I mean, this is... This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, how, and maybe we've talked about it a bit on the show, how, you know, the internet has made this sort of bold first person show everything expression, you know, that's, it's not a challenge anymore. It's not shocking when someone in first person writes something dark and fucked up about their life and it gets mm-hmm. out there into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can, you can write anything and put it online now and it's there forever. Um, but in the 1970s and 1980s, um, when Lucia Berlin was writing these kinds of stories, a, a woman in poverty writing about, um, drinking a lot and having sex and feeling violent and all these things that Lucia Berlin was writing about, that just wasn't, that wasn't on the front page of the New York Times magazine, you know? Um, so she was a trendsetter without even knowing a trend was coming. Which, you know, that I think that's, there's a debt to be paid. And, and that's why I think it's great that this book has become a bestseller because she, she laid it out there before anyone, you know, she cut herself open and, and did it before people were. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's pretty amazing to me. We have to talk about uh, the short story, Dr. H.A. Moynihan. Yes. Uh, oh, do. that's a fucked up story. It, it's such a brilliant story. I mean, I, for me, this is like, this is just one of the, greatest short stories ever written. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, it's it's a, just such a, I mean, what is it? Four or five pages? It's so short. And um, it's this horrific um, grandfather figure who is a uh, racist. You, you learn in the first paragraph. Yeah, he's, you, you hate him. He's like this horrible, horrible racist old school dentist. And our narrator gets to help him pull his own teeth out um which i have no problem spoiling because the the story is so short and everybody should go out and read it um and it just becomes this incredibly harrowing awful wonderfully realized um description of pulling out um her grandfather's teeth and yeah and and he's bleeding and then she thinks she's killed him basically um and it's so well described and so well paced and then also just has this this whole incredible other level going on about the relationship between the generations and the way that we uh, hope to move on from the horribleness that we've inherited. Um, in this case, she has to literally, you know, ritualistically kill her grandfather. <laughs> so crazy and then uh, you know and then the fact that that ultimately restores him because he's made these artificial teeth to replace all his teeth and that that's what he wanted all along it's just like this it, it feels like I mean it's incredibly realistic but it has like an almost fairy tale quality to oh, it oh for sure um, you know yeah like a grim fairy tale yeah exactly yeah Yeah, I mean the Um, moment after uh, she pulls his teeth out she's looking for tea bags because that's what they used to use to stop the blood right so how about this paragraph I'll never think of tea bagging again (laughs) (laughs) how about this paragraph the teeth were all out 
I tried to bring the chair down with the foot pedal, but hit the wrong lever, spinning him around, spattering circles of blood on the floor. I left him, the chair creaking slowly to a stop. I wanted some tea bags. He had people bite down on them to stop the bleeding. I dumped Mamie's drawers out. Talcum, prayer cards, thank you for the flowers. The tea bags were in a canister behind the hot plate. That is disgusting. I love it. You you haven't even got to the next paragraph where oh, they're yeah, look hissing and vomiting. The towel in his mouth was so, so charisma. Yeah. Oh my god. It's, it's super so gross. Good. Yeah. But no, I think that image but of like her spinning him around by accident in the chair and the blood splattering in a circle. I mean, come on, that's great. And the weird thing is that this is this great bonding moment, actually, between the grandfather and the narrator, who is the granddaughter, where after she's done this, she's pulled out all his teeth and then shoved in the fake teeth. And it's there, you know, the grandfather's covered in piss and blood and vomit and tea bags. Um, and she's covered in all of those things as well. Um, the grandfather's laughing and he says, Well, Dad Gum, he was laughing. And then she says, A masterpiece, Grandpa. I laughed too and kissed his sweaty head. Oh, Jesus Christ, some crypt keeper shit here. This is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, but there is something really interesting. Like, I mean, I think to me, pretty obviously, the story is about how subsequent generations have to, you know, like get rid of the poisons and prejudices of the previous. Mm-hmm. But, like, think about how close she has to get to him. Like, they have to bond to get there. And I think there's something... Right. If she's not rejecting him. She's getting incredibly close to him and tearing it out of his face. And, like, coming to love him at the very moment that she's coming to, like, fear and disgust with him. And I don't know. I... I and Love ultimately, that. she gives him exactly what he wants. Yeah. Right. You yeah. Know, like, he wins in the end. Yeah. He wins, too. It's, that's, it's, it's a great little fable. <laughs> well, and the thing that Lucia Berlin does so well is she also ends her stories on incredible emotional turns. Um, so this crazy story happens, and, you know, it's, it's a little, you know, it's a five-page story, so we're going to give you the, 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 all the spoilers, but the... The mother comes in and sees all of this happening and helps out basically to clean up the, the mess after knocking over a barrel of teeth, uh, which is another scene altogether. But the mother hates the grandfather and, um, you know, she comes in and she saves, you know, helps clean up. And at the end of the day, the little girl says to her mother, you don't still hate him, do you, mama? And the mother says, oh, yes, yes, I do. Oh, it's really powerful. And then, you know, that's that sort of um, open ending of a short story where you can then imagine what the next 50 years are like. Um, (laughs) You know, it's not actually open-ended because it's just pushing you right into those very specific 50 years. Right, exactly. And And those very specific 50 years are are the 50 years that Lucia Berlin lives. You know... The, the stories don't get any less weird or violent or menacing or sexual. And, and there's something sexual about that story, too. Um, but there's, there's um, throughout the story, there's, or throughout the, the collection, there is a undercurrent of menace and violence and rape uh, and sex, um, you know, that, that lives in these stories. Because we're also talking about some pretty bad people in a lot of these stories as she descends into addiction 
um, in the, these stories, you know, she's living on the in, on the border um, in New Mexico, and she's living with heroin addicts, and she's pregnant and running drugs and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and every single scene that she's or story that she's in, you you also understand that she's this person who's having a, a difficult life and is an addict and all these things. But she's also beautiful. Like you understand that she's particularly alluring on top of everything else. And she talks about that, um, talks about sort of the um, the challenge of beauty uh, in these situations, which I, you know, it's, it's another sort of predating everything else that would come after is that just because you're pretty does not mean you are an object for someone to rape you. Yeah. Um, you know, just, just amazing stuff um, throughout. Um, there, there's a, this one story called um, 502 that I don't know if you guys read, uh, but just the, the one detail to know is that she's doing a crossword puzzle and the, the hint is 502. And so she puts into the to the crossword. Oh, that's that's the code in Oakland for a DWI. So that must be what it is. So she puts in DWI for the answer, but it's you know the hint for an area code or something like that. I don't remember what it is. Um, but it you know all these things that have happened to her in the past in these previous stories really come to bear later on in, in other stories. And they're not. It's not like it's a connected collection of stories, but they're connected by the author pretty clearly. So, uh, where do you guys think she sort of fits in contemporary fiction? Like, is she someone that's going to last? Um, is she someone that it's just interesting to read about her now because for this brief moment in time, we know her backstory? Um, or is this the sort of thing that is going to be one of those books that is taught? Is she going to become part of the canon? Yeah, um, that's a, I am going there. I think that this is a, she's a writer's writer. Um, you know, I think it's she's going to, especially after reading Dave Collins' essay, which I, I definitely still want to talk about a little bit, um, because yeah, he, yeah, he describes what she was able to teach him so beautifully, um, and I, it just made, it opened up another side of her for me, where it was like, oh, this was this was a, a not only somebody with an incredible talent, um, but this was a craftsperson too. You know, mm -hmm. someone who really knew how to um, give the kinds of notes that could change students' lives. And, and, I, and you feel that in her writing, like the, the precision and, and freedom that she can do both of those things at the same time, um, and you believe it. I, I just, I think that she's going to be, you know, like, I, I, for me, it's like, you know, she's in the, the list of short stories that every student of writing should read. Um, it's like, you know, Bart will be the Scrivener. <laughs> manual for cleaning women. I really wow. I don't know. I don't think I, people read Bartleby the Scrivener anymore. Yeah, they do. Uh, I'm sure they do. But no, I, I you know, when, when, like, Todd, I feel like, it, you know, you teach, I feel like one of these short stories fits into what you would teach so well. And there's oh, yeah. so many things you could talk about. You can talk about her, her word choice. You can talk about... Um, the the fluidity of her sentences. You can talk about how she truncates sentences. Like the the rhythm is so it's incredible. Um, well, I'm, uh, school starts for uh, for me tomorrow. Actually, uh, tomorrow's the beginning of fall quarter, and uh, I'm teaching a class on a fiction class for nonfiction writers. So mm -hmm. the the students in my um, MFA program have to have a minor, basically, um, and I'm going to use emergency room as a great jumping off point of that nexus also between 
whatever fact and fiction is, yeah. truth and reality. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't think anyone in the class has ever read a story quite like it either. Um, but I was looking at this at the uh, essay that Dave Cullen wrote um, about Lucia Berlin and this piece of advice that um, that she gave him, which he absolutely applied in um, in Columbine. Um, he says Lucia's guidance was quiet and subtle, with one memorable exception: the tyranny of the preaching narrator. Write your characters as ghastly as as you like, she said, but get off their backs. So, oh, it, yeah. it's a great piece of advice. Um, and you see it really clearly in her work. You know, that, that's what I was saying earlier about how she doesn't, she's not judging these characters. You know, she's no. presenting them yeah. for who they are. And it's up to you to make a decision how you feel about them. Well, um, I think that, I don't think she's going to be as popular as you think, Ryder. But I do think that this is the book that will be very special to a lot of people that will make people feel like they have a secret. You know, those books, like I have mm-hmm. a secret. Joanne Beard is, you know, a great example. Like Joanne Beard is our secret nonfiction writer secret. And I think that will be her role. And it's such a beautiful, like special role. But of course, if it was more, it would be awesome. Because she deserves it. And Lydia Davis could elevate her to that if she's proselytizing. But, I mean, she's also a bestseller now. So, though I guess that that doesn't mean anything a year from now, you know, because... It's one of the short stories, too. You know what I mean? Right. It's just not... They're never... Short stories will never break out of a certain ring of reader. Um, You know, it's, it's just a lot of people don't buy collections. Right. I know, like, people don't know who George Saunders is, and that makes me want to die. Do they really not know? Yeah, they really don't know. Yeah, they really don't know, Todd. You've got to get thing. out of your MFA world. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing, of, and, and I know Ryder mocked me for this, actually, when we were doing her live show, that, you know, you sort of, this is the problem also with just being a Democrat, is that I just believe that all my Democratic friends are all the people that exist in the world, so therefore no one could believe crazy people like Donald Trump are real. Um, that basically all of my friends are writers or, you know, um, creative folks in, in some level, or they work at a university, so they're, you know, hyper-educated, and I just assume, oh, everyone, everyone knows uh, Joanne Beard. Like, when you said Joanne Beard's our secret thing, I'm like, everyone I know has read The Fourth State of Matter, and then everyone I know is a professor of creative writing, exactly. so, yeah. You live <laughs> in the tiniest world. If I said... To my 100 closest people in my life, you know, who is Joanne Beard? Only the two of you would know who she was. Um, I guess I'm swear. in the same boat. I'm in the exact same yeah. boat. Yeah. Not Joanne Beard no specifically. Idea. Like, there's certain people we could talk, you know, like, but I think, like, Joanne Beard is, like, like Julia said, exactly right. She's kind of one of those secret knock type people that, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Very yeah, I get like my yeah. my three siblings who are all professional writers would have no idea who Joanne Beard is. That's a good point there you because go. they they exist in a completely different realm. Yeah, huh? Yeah, isn't that interesting? I'm really Mind learning a lot about alone. my elitist life here today. And then we're just going. <laughs> good. <laughs> all right. Well, for all of you future elitists, please do read a manual for cleaning women because you'll love it. You it's will. Objectively great. 
<laughs> it is objectively great. And also, we should note, has one of the best covers of the year. It's uh, it's a an orange cover with a key from a hotel um, as the uh, as the cover image, which is cool. This is so not orange. Well, this I'm colorblind, salmon. so I have no idea what Ugh. color it is. We, have we talked yet on the show about me getting um, the colorblind glasses? No. Do we want to save it for because we've already said? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll mention it on our right, visit. That's a teaser. That's a teaser. <laughs> Yeah.